0: My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcarecom loss. That's plushcarecom loss. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon and uh, to quote President Gerald Ford, a long national nightmare is over. Now he was talking about uh, the post-Watergate era in America. I'm talking about the fact that uh, the new snooker season is upon us. It starts here this week in Leicester with the Bet Victor Championship League and uh, will continue of course all the way through until the World Championship next May. Uh, it's been two months, there's been things happening of course, has been seniors and Q School and various amateur events and, and so on, so it's not been a completely barren spell, but in terms of the professional circuit, which is what most people are interested in, it's been about eight weeks since Ronnie O'Sullivan won his seventh world title, and so we're easing ourselves back into the new season with the Championship League, and the podcast is back, and there's big news on the podcast coming later about the future of it. Uh, I mean, I could just tell you now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease it out uh, to in, in fact, phony drama into, into the podcast, which of course is all the rage on television. So rather than just telling you now, it's a bit like when Hugh Edwards comes on, uh, the start of the news, there's been a big Champions League night, football this is, and instead of just, instead of telling you what's happened, it'll be, it'll say something like, it was a big night for Liverpool in the Champions League. But it won't actually tell you what happened, <laughs> because there's no other way of finding out other than watching to the end of the news. Anyway, we'll also later on have an email from Neil Folds, who's got a new, new idea. That he's uh, interested in in uh, bringing into the sport, uh, and uh, so a lot to look forward to. Clearly, um, thanks to everyone who emailed in. I, I dropped a little episode uh, last week about uh, asking for people, fans of snooker, to come on a fan special because uh, we, I wanted to get to fans' perspective on attending tournaments, what's good about it, what's not so good, ideas, and general sort of uh, contributions and observations about what it's like to be a snooker fan. Uh, thank you to everyone who emailed in. I have chosen uh, three people who are going to come on. It's nothing against anyone who I, ha- who I haven't chosen, so if you've not heard from me, um, thank you for emailing. And a lot of people did. I had to whittle it down. It's a bit like judges' houses on X Factor. There's another up-to-date cultural reference. Um, right. I, had to, I had to choose, and I've chosen for a variety of reasons, these people, because they, they're all people who've got a lot of experience of going, and they made some good points in their emails. But that's nothing against anyone who I haven't chosen. I will be reading out other contributions there's still still time recording it next week so it's time if you have any um, observations about your time as a snooker fan any ideas for improving the experience uh and what is your experience what, t- tell me uh, you know what it's been like going to these events how the venues differ it's always interesting what's available at venues all that sort of stuff snooker scene podcast at mail.com that's snooker scene podcast at mail.com well, I've not been completely idle since the Crucible. One thing I have been doing is just taking the time to have a look at the way a few other sports uh, operate and what maybe snooker can learn from them. Because I thought we would start um, on this return. By the way, this is our eighth year. I should say that right from the off. Eighth year, we started in 2015. We've not been here every week since then. But uh, it's it's season eight <laughs> of... That's the, that's the time when it, uh, season eight of a... American TV drama is that time, and usually it gets cancelled. But anyway, we're still here, and uh, you know we were here. 2015. This is pre-pre Brexit, pre Donald Trump, pre Boris Johnson, pre Bridgerton. All these horrors were still were still to come. It was their innocent times. Uh, the whole back catalogue is available online if you uh, if you want to go back and listen to some old episodes. But anyway, I thought we would start this uh, this season by really taking a look at the current state of snooker. Um, where does it stand, um, and maybe a few ideas about how we can sort of push forward? I think the, the danger always is you reach a certain level, and snooker's has reached a very high level. Clearly, um, in terms of a professional sport that has a lot of television exposure, the danger is you just sort of plateau and you don't sort of you don't push forward and you settle and you get complacent. And we ha- we need to guard against that as a sport. I think Snooker's is in a very good state, as I say, due to television. We have a massive Footprint on free-to-air television. That's one thing I've noticed about quite a few other sports are now very interested in getting back on free-to-air TV. I'm talking from a, a British television perspective here because that's where I live. Um, so I'm talking BBC and ITV, Channel Four, Channel Five. These channels that are that you don't have to pay a, a subscription for, outside of obviously the license fee. Um. So sports like Rugby League, Rugby Union have noticed trying to come back on. Cricket's got more of a footprint now. We um, had, because the 100 last year was on the BBC and uh, the highlights from the test series are quite prominent now on the BBC. Um, sports understand um, that, you know, it's good. Obviously, sports channels are great because they have the time. They have the time during the day to show um, the action and also they can come at it from the perspective, they know their audience are sports fans because they're watching sports channels, so they can tailor, tailor the coverage to them. But it's good to actually have a general audience as well that's available to you. And we've seen, for example, in football, the FA Cup being on BBC and ITV, you know, the viewing figures are fantastic. So, but we're already there. Uh, BBC, ITV in the UK, both show a lot of snooker. Free sports show the Championship League, although I've been told that Free Sports, <laughs> um, the name of the channel, may, ne- may need to change because apparently it's coming off Freeview this this week. Now Freeview, for those uh, maybe outside the UK, that, that is essentially the basic TV package you get. You get all the, you get over hundred channels, but you don't have to pay extra for any of them. Whereas satellite and digital TV, the subscriptions and so on. Um, so I don't. I'm not quite sure. Um, they do have a streaming uh, service. I'm not quite sure whether how exactly you watch that but uh, free sports is still available on other platforms but apparently this week it is coming on free view but anyway um, in general we have uh, you know a lot of a lot of snooker on uh ITV and BBC I mean combined just those two channels combined that's a good 70 days of snooker you've got uh, Quest which is another free view channel that show the home nations um, in conjunction with Eurosport so that's another four weeks that's another Let's let's call it thirty days. So it's about a hundred days. Just those three um, of free to air snooker, plus all the coverage that Eurosport give it. You know, which is over a hundred days. Some of that is of the, the same days, of course. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a lot. And then you've got you know, think Matching Live and Dizone and all these other outlets around the world. I believe on Facebook as well, some of it's been shown. So in theory wherever you are in the world you should be able to watch snooker now whether that's absolutely true I can't say but put it this way it's more accessible than it's ever been and that's good because it's always been a sport that's been big because of television um, and you know obviously now the internet as well has helped to to spread the word so we've got a good platform it's a high profile sport we saw great viewing figures at the world championship uh, particularly the final I think a lot of people bought into this sense of history that Ronnie O'Sullivan was, was chasing with the equaling the Stephen Hendry's record of seven world titles. Um, but the other tournaments as well get very, very good figures across the board. Snooker is uh, is a popular TV sport. So we're starting, actually, when I say the current state of snooker, we're starting in a very good position. The question is, how do we sort of p- keep pushing on? How do we stay relevant? How do we stay on people's radar? Because the fact is... We're not just competing against other sports. We're a TV product. We're competing against other TV shows. And, of course, now with all the streaming services, there are hundreds of other things people could be watching if they've got time to, to watch TV. Um, and we're also competing with against the other ways that people spend their leisure time. So what is it about snooker that has to stay special and has to stay relevant for people to choose our sport? Overall... Audience figures on TV, as I say, very good. And ticket sales also have been very, very good. Um, obviously, coming back after Covid, I think it was a great desire for, for people to come back. And we saw at the Masters, I think, certainly, um, the, the desire to, to come and watch live Snook. And we saw it again at the Crucible as well. Will Snook at all, who run the professional circuit, have a problem at the moment? And it's quite a straightforward one. It's China. Okay. Because of Covid, they don't know when they can go back to China. Now, the new calendar, if you, if you've been sort of checking, the World Snooker Tour website for the season's dates. It only goes up to the end of this year, the calendar year, 2022. I understand the rest of the calendar will be released this week. It may even be out by the time you listen to this. There'll be at least one new event on it as well, which is good. So the new calendar's coming out, but it's been very, very difficult. I do have sympathy uh, with Nigel Oldfield, who's the operations executive there, and, and his team just trying to plan the season because they were hoping to go back to China early next year. They... They essentially, initially when they were planning the calendar, they blocked out a month where they might be able to fit as many as three Chinese tournaments in back-to-back. They were hoping to go to Shanghai in September for an invitation event, but it's looking increasingly likely that none of that's going to happen. It's looking like, again, we won't be going back to China. There's not been a tournament there since 2019. They've had more lockdowns. I was reading today that there hasn't been any COVID cases reported in Shanghai this month. But that's following a lockdown. So even if we did somehow get there, you know, it might be that the players would have to quarantine, there would be a bit of a rigmarole just to get in and play. It would take a big chunk of time maybe to play a a week long tournament, there'd be quarantining possibly either side of it. So whether that's, you know, realistic or whether they would again push back and maybe leave it till next season, we'll have to see. But it's been very difficult. And of course the, the big issue is that these tournaments are really lucrative, or they were. You know, we would go to China as many as five times a season The players were playing for big money. They were big tournaments and we missed them. And it's not straightforward to just automatically replace them like for like because they were underpinned by Chinese sponsors. So the money was coming from China. Well, Snooker Talk can't just pull on another five events of equivalent value somewhere else. It didn't work like that. Um, So it's difficult and they have my sympathy. Uh, Planning the calendar has been tricky. We'll see what. What we end up with when it comes out, but I suspect it will be not dissimilar to last year. Still plenty of tournaments, but you know, not quite of the, uh, of the scale maybe that, that we saw before the pandemic. Championship League has come along to fill a gap. You know, people have a go at it, but ultimately, you know, players are getting a chance in very early season to play for prize money to get match practice. I think one of the best things about it is you're guaranteed three matches actually. You turn up. You know, you might be rusty after the summer, but you're not going to play and lose and go home. If you lose the first match, you've got two more to play and then a chance to come back for the for the next two stages. Um, but as I say, we'll see what uh, the rest of the calendar says. But in general, just looking at the sport, we've reached, as I say, a, a particular level and that's in no small part down to the work that Barry Hearn and his team have, have done over the last decade. And actually, it must be said, because of talking about COVID, the fact we were able to keep going is testament to how well Matchroom is run as a company and the fact that they had the reserves, they had the rainy day fund that they used not just on snooker but all their other sports to keep going, keep providing an income for the players and entertainment that I know a lot of snooker fans appreciated when they were stuck at home. So, you know, no question, full marks for all that. I guess now, though, as we come out of COVID, or we hope to, how do we, how do we make the best out of the sport? One of the main problems, and it's already apparent from what I've said, one of the main problems we've got is that it's still primarily a British sport. It's the World Snooker Tour, but I counted 13 events in the United Kingdom. Now, that's great for British snooker fans, obviously, and this is the traditional base of the the, uh, sport. Okay, but for the sport to be really successful, we need to spread our wings more. We do have tournaments. We have two in Germany. There's the new event in Turkey. And I know they're exploring at least one other European destination. Uh, you know, very, very strong chance that there'll be a tournament there this season. But other than that, it seems to be largely be a British sport. And of course, that's reflected in the number of players on the tour from the UK. Um, there was a discussion about, I can't even remember the specifics, but it was something to do with Q School. And I think I, think I suggested, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Joe Perry put something up about, You know, we want more young players to come through. And I suggested having a separate Q school event, maybe for players under 25. So you're guaranteed some new players. There's arguments against that because the standard may not be high enough for them to do well on the tour. But someone said, oh, well, you know, it's got to be merit. It's got to be on merit. But what does that mean? Because not everyone has the same opportunity to play snooker. It's a, the most, one of the pointless phrases you'll hear in sport is if you're good enough you'll make it because that ignores a key question which is how do you become good in the first place it's only through resources and infrastructure and above all opportunity and where does the opportunity come from you need somewhere to play snooker if Ronnie O'Sullivan had been born in Ecuador in 1975 he would not be seven times world champion because he would not have seen a snooker table so spreading opportunity is important now Snooker is played all around the world, and it's played in more countries than ever. But obviously, a lot of these countries have got a lot of catching up to do. And ultimately, they all face the same issue, which is if they want to turn pro, and we've got some new pros from various parts of the world, which is good. But if they want to turn pro, they've essentially got to base themselves in the UK. And not everyone can afford to do that. Not everyone has funding. Eagle Figurator from Brazil, fantastic talent, really brilliant player. But he's had to essentially pack it in because he can't afford to keep coming over to the UK. And we have these ludicrous situations where, for example, Lucas Kleckers from Germany has got back on the tour. Brilliant. Well done to him. But if he's going to play at the German Masters in Berlin, he's got to win two matches in the UK. He's got to qualify for his home tournament in Germany in the UK. It just seems wrong. So this is not something that can be changed overnight. It's something that maybe should have been looked at, you know, many, many years ago, but for the sport to really, really compete on a global level, it has to become more global. It can't just be based in Britain. Um, obviously, China, in terms of participation, have had a massive uh, influence on the circuit. But this is kind of the point I'm making. You know, there's, it's not a genetic reason why the best players are from Britain and China. It's, a, it's about opportunity. It's about structure. It's about infrastructure. Um, and it's about having that uh, those resources to, to play. And, and this is something that if if we're projecting 10 years from now, how will the game become more international? Well, it has to be that more countries have these opportunities. One thing I think that would help is, and this is not a new idea at all because it's what happened in the 1980s, if Snooker started to visit a few more countries, but not with big rank, ranking events that you know cost hundreds of thousands to put on They've had the World Series of Darts, where they go to various parts of the world with a small number of players. A few small invitation events, four-man, eight-man, however many players to far-off places, I think, would really help. Because then they could see in these in these countries the the game. Barry Hearns, Matrium, went to Thailand in the 80s. James Watanar, I think he was 16, he played in it. And, of course, that was the start of his great career we've seen that happen in China happen in in various other parts of the world as well in Europe, Belgium and places like this Holland and I think that would help us spread Snooker's appeal if, if some of these countries rather than watching the players on TV had a chance to see them up front there was plans for an event in Hong Kong in August we have heard nothing more about that so I'm assuming it's not happening but uh, it may happen at some point in the future um, but th- I think that would be I think that would that would really help. But the problem is, of course, now Barry is running well, well, he's president of World Snooker Tour. We we're told he's retired, but I mean, yeah, I don't think Barry's a retiring type. But now, of course, he's got to look after every player. Um, but even then, you know, you hear some low ranked players say, "Oh, you know, there's too many tournaments for the top players," which is complete nonsense because the Kazoo Series, for example, which which they point at because because they're ranking events, but they're a restrictive field. Anyone can get in them. They're not for the top players. They're for the players who perform the best over the season. Jimmy Robertson nearly dropped off the tour um, in 2021, but he stayed on. And then last season he had a great season and he ended up in the semi-finals of the Players' Championship, which is a 16-man event. But that's because he played really well during the season. That's the attitude players should have. It's not that the fields are restricted, it's that I could get in them if I do well. Um, and those events, you know, those high prestige events, I think they really helped to, to sell the game. The way I see it, we have two constituencies that we're trying to appeal to. Snooker fans, so people who already watch the sport, and they should be respected and their, uh, the integrity of the game should be respected in terms of what people who've been watching it all their lifetime want. But the other is people who could be snooker fans, but for whatever reason haven't found their way into the game yet. And... I'm not suggesting you can just sort of lift up a rock and there's 2 million people waiting to discover snooker but there's an opportunity, particularly you know, with online acti- activities, to actually foreground the players a bit more maybe, maybe that's a way in to um, finding snooker, becoming interested in the characters of the players Here's a lesson I learned from uh, playwriting very early on, someone said to me the most important thing to think about are the characters, not the story, the characters, because the characters are the way in for the audience. And the example he used, and it's an example I always use when I'm talking about this, is the film Titanic. Okay, put aside what you think about the film, it doesn't matter. But in that film, hundreds of people die when the ship sinks. But the audience, we only care about two of them, Kate and Leo. Why? Because right from the start of the film, we've been following their story. We've got to know them, We've got to know them individually, we've got to know them as a couple, so we care about them as a couple, therefore we care whether they live or die. All the other people falling off the side of the ship, we haven't spent any time with, so we can't relate to them. And I think if you're promoting a sport, that's kind of the strategy you've got to have. You've got to promote the characters as much as the sport, because snookers, (laughs) it's not the easiest sell. If, If you say to someone who's never been, oh, do you want to come to the snooker? How are you going to sell it? You've got to come sit for possibly four hours at a time. Oh, by the way, you can't, use your phone, and you can't talk, basically. You've got to sit in silence and watch these people, you know, knocking balls around and trying to get them into holes. It's not the easiest sell, actually, because you look at darts on TV or or cricket or or football, the kind of atmosphere speaks for itself, but snooker's very different, and it's what a lot of people like about it, actually. But they're established fans. I'm talking about people who could be fans. But if they see a lifestyle feature on one of the players they may think oh he looks interesting she looks interesting yeah tell me when they're playing I'll go and watch them this is why I think Ronnie O'Sullivan's documentary on we believe on Netflix later in the year because they followed him all last season culminated at the Crucible I think that's why that will be very important actually for the sport because although it's focusing very much on him it will help to it will be exposure for the sport to a different audience people will watch that who maybe have never even watched a snooker match and that could help bring people to the sport um, there, was a, there was a thing last week um, that World Snooker Tour did with Dave Gilbert and Rob Walker uh, on Dave's farm uh, they, were, they were in his tractor which was I thought, I, th- I thought it was a lot of fun I like Rob a lot I like Dave a lot it was a lot of fun but I also wondered is it a bit of an in-joke for snooker fans because we know them we know Dave we know Rob from the outside people looking at that what's their way in and i've said before i can never remember whether i said it on the podcast or just in, in everyday life i think there is a big argument for trying to when they do these features to try and get someone involved who's got nothing to do with snooker but's got a big following itv did a feature with judd trump at one of the tournaments a couple of years ago and chris hughes uh, came over i think it was in Cheltenham, and Chris Hughes, he was on Love Island, uh, but he works on ITV's racing coverage. He's a smart guy, and he's got millions, literally millions of social media followers. And that feature he did with Trump was a massive hit online because it was something very different. It was someone who wasn't connected to snooker, but was much nearer Trump's age. So they were talking about things that were relevant to their generation, like music and fashion and nights out and so on. And But most importantly, Chris Hughes, people who follow him maybe don't follow snooker but they'll watch content he's involved in and it got it did massive numbers and that's the sort of thing that maybe can help um can help snooker particularly with audiences that we don't really understand because you know as technology moves on there'll be a 14 year old on tiktok you know that means nothing at all to even a 20 something who's who's you know working in the media um so you know ideas like that i think can help push Snooker forward and instead of doing that the, the Will Snooker did a feature what's in my cue case, well that's again of interest to the first constituency I mentioned, snooker fans, diehard snooker fans will be interested in that. But there's no way in for the second constituency, which is people who have not discovered snooker yet. However, something like what's in my wardrobe or what's on my watch list or what's in my fridge, you know, things that people can understand in everyday life in the ordinary world, maybe that would be a way in. Maybe if you said Chris Hughes round to Judd Trump's house and went through his wardrobe. What do you wear on a night out? What do you wear when you're just slobbing around the house? What do you wear to the gym? What do you wear, you know, to a wedding, whatever. That would be relatable because we could all understand it. And then maybe, maybe they would see that and say, oh, I like, look at Judd. Let me know when he's playing in the next tournament. I may even come along. So what I'm saying is we can't just aim everything at the, first constituency, which is people who already like snooker, we've got them already, we must respect them and keep them, but there's a lot of other people, potentially, who we could also drag into our little world. They won't be listening to this podcast, but who knows? (laughs) There there may be a way in uh, for them to discover the game. And these are things... I mean, Barry Hearn is a genius at understanding what people like, sometimes before they like it, and that's why his events across all sports have been so popular. But I do think in terms of reaching out to this new audience, we need to come up with these ideas and try them. And even to the extent that, you know, there's been innovations I know not everyone's like, like having a dance cam and all that sort of stuff. But it's things that are related to other live events and other sports that, again, you know, some people who maybe put off snook by the fact they think it's a bit kind of dull, it may appeal to them, you know, and it's worth—it's always worth trying these things. I think as well, the whole sport needs to try and be a bit more positive about the sport. I'm always surprised when, at the major events in particular, and the World Championship obviously is the biggest of them all. So many players seem to turn up with a laundry list of <laughs> of complaints about about their own sport, um, and. I remember speaking to Ken Doherty about this once, and he said, "Really, if you're trying to earn a living from something, it's in your interest to talk it up as much as possible." Now, that's not to say you can never criticise. I mean, check again, check out the uh, check out the the previous episodes of this podcast. There are things to criticise, and we should always scrutinise any government, any any governing body. But for example, there's a new tournament being announced, I believe, this week, um, which is very different to anything else on the circuit so when it's announced here's an idea don't rush to Twitter finding things to complain about it when it hasn't even happened yet maybe try and find something positive to say about it <laughs> you know it, it, it's, we don't have to just look for the negatives in everything it's interesting, I was watching Paul McCartney at Glastonbury um, and well there's two secrets to his success the one is an obvious one, he's a great songwriter he's got a credible back catalogue. But the other one is he is, and he's 80 now Paul McCartney, he's stayed positive and, and optimistic. His entire um, sort of life philosophy is to kind of look on the bright side and I think a lot of people are looking for that now. You know, we, we, we're living in a time of division and we saw in the Platinum Jubilee as well in Britain people actually are looking for ways to come together this is one of the reasons these terrible right wing news channels are failing because people don't want division they don't they don't want to be set against each other they actually want to come together to uh, to use a, a, a Beatles song title um and you know he, he got up and he played he set. he didn't treat us to you know what he thought about politics and make statements and, and all this and he's seen i mean the beatles started out as an incredibly optimistic band coming through the post-war era in britain when people were looking for things to change they had that optimistic tone which they just about kept throughout the whole career. There were some songs that were not like that, but mainly, right to the end, they were this positive force, and that's why I think they've stayed such a so culturally uh, relevant. Whereas a lot of music over the years has been very much downbeat and all life's terrible and we're all going to die and isn't it all awful. I don't think people overwhelmingly want that. And we saw the, the force of the positivity that he brought to the Glastonbury stage um, on, on Saturday night. And you know maybe we could try in the snooker world to be a bit more positive about our own sport. Um, we have various players who at times act like they're too cool for school. You know, oh I don't watch snooker on TV. I'm not bothered about it. Let's be clear, we wouldn't know the names of any of them, but for snooker. <laughs> so, so you know, but for snooker, maybe they could ask themselves what they'd be doing. Um, so again, it's a great sport. Embrace it promote it, be positive about it and try to push it to as many people as possible that's in all our interests Um, yeah, so uh, that's my kind of uh, manifesto but that's my kind of point as the season starts I think Snoop is in a good place but I think there's an opportunity for it to be bigger I think there's an opportunity to, as I say discover some new audiences um, and I think there's an opportunity to, as a sport Be a bit more positive about what we have because what we have is a product that has stood the test of time, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward, (laughs) I'm looking forward to the season ahead. So let's move on to this email from Neil Folds. Uh, it's actually two emails, but it's all, it was supposed to be one, I believe, I don't know what went wrong, but anyway, uh, and I must say, when I got this initially, I, I did wonder if Neil had actually been kidnapped and was trying to communicate with me by code to let let me know where he was. But it turned out, I I believe he's being serious, it's about the ranking system. He says, I hope you're summering well and enjoying a well-earned break. Clearly, as we find ourselves in the height of the silly season, where there isn't any real snooker news, perhaps now is time to look into the rankings and a possible change to the way players are ranked. The the phrase I'd hold on to there is silly season. Anyway, we continue... I think we all understand that luck of the draw, good and bad, can play a huge part in how a tournament unfolds. But below is an example of a ranking order based on the performances of the players beaten at the Crucible. Clearly Ronnie is still number one, otherwise my listings would become ludicrous. But everyone is ranked on the performances of the person who went on to beat them, or in Ronnie's case didn't. Anyway, below is the list as it stands. That was the first email. Then uh, the second email... It has the list. He says, I'll, 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 I won't read the list out, but I'll explain it shortly. He says, in fact, I chose to send it as a follow-up email because I didn't want anyone to hack into this ranking list and claim it as their own. Nothing personal, but Jamie Jones finished 32nd of the players who competed in Sheffield because he lost to Mark Selby, who lost to Yambing Tao, who lost to Mark Williams, who lost to Judd, who lost to Ronnie. <laughs> Whereas Dave Gilbert, who lost to the eventual winner in round one, is 17th on the list. All of the players in all rounds are ranked according to the player performances of whoever beat them, thus negating the luck of the draw aspect. You're rewarded for winning, but if you lose, you are judged by the performance of your victor. How the points should be distributed is another matter, but it would make players who are in or close to a qualifying bubble dependent on what happens after they lose. You may think this idea is complete nonsense, but I believe it to be the way forward. Well, okay, so he sent the 32 players based on the World Championship... Obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan won the tournament, so he's number one. Judd Trump was runner-up, he's number two. And then we have the semi-finalists, Higgins and Williams, and so on and so on. So the top 16 are the players who got to the last 16. And then the 16 players who lost in the first round are ranked dependent on who they lost to. So Dave Gilbert lost to the eventual winner, Ronnie O'Sullivan, so he's 17th. Hussain Vafai lost to the runner-up, Judd Trump, so he's 18th, and so on and so on. As Neil says, eventually we come down to 32nd, Jamie Judds. Um, so, Neil says, I might think this idea is complete nonsense. I don't think that. Lunacy might be a, a better word for it. Here's the problem I have with it, OK? And presumably, this would be extrapolated to include every tournament. I don't, I'm not quite sure how that would work. You would need some sort of spreadsheet um, and probably a calculator. But here's the thing, OK? I, I mean, I, like Neil, I commentated a lot of the tournament. The person who played, I think, the best in the first round and lost... Was Ding Jun-wee. He played really well against Karen Wilson. Lost ten eight, had a chance to force a decider. Mister Pink, but on this list he's thirtieth because of the the rules that Neil has uh, set out. Whereas, for example, let's just pick a player, Michael White lost ten three to Mark Williams. I mean, Mark played brilliantly, but Michael White won three frames in the in at the Crucible, and he's twentieth <laughs> on this list. Um, whereas Ding is thirtieth, and also. <laughs> Just because a player wins a tournament doesn't mean they play well in every round. I mean, when Trump won it, he didn't. He probably should have lost in the first round in 2019. The classic case of that is Stuart Bingham in 2015. Um, he didn't play well in the first round against Robbie Williams. He had a heavy cold, I believe, and just struggled. Last three rounds, he played brilliantly. He beat Ronnie, he beat uh, Trump, and he beat Sean Murphy. But in the first round, he didn't play well. But on this basis, on Neil's list, Robbie Williams will be 17th. <laughs> and he... You know, certainly didn't play the best snooker in the first round of the players who lost. Uh, so that's a slight issue I have with it, and and also, you know, what I suppose the, just the obvious question: why, why should Dave Gilbert be above all the other players just because he lost to the person who eventually won the tournament? Sure, doesn't performance come into it? I, I do wonder if, if we're going to change the ranking system, which, by the way, they have no I, no um, I think idea of doing at the moment. But maybe you could factor in actually how many frames you've won. Maybe you could get points for, for winning frames, maybe even breaks. I mean, li- literally some recognition of how you performed. Because otherwise, it, on this m- metric, Gilbert could have lost 10 nil to Ronnie and he still would have been 17th above all the other players who lost in the first round. There are people who, cleverer than me, who've come up with various systems um, to encompass the whole tour, factoring in who you've played. But as as I say, just because you played someone who goes a long way in the tournament doesn't necessarily reflect how they played. I mean, Ronnie played well against Gilbert because he played well against everybody. He was three nil down early on. He played well in that match. He played well in every match. So this year, it's not that he got better and better. I think he played to a very consistent level the whole tournament. But in general, as I say, for example, Bingham in 2015, he didn't uh, <laughs> in the first round. But you know, on this on this basis, Robbie Williams would uh, would have a huge. Rankings boost. So it's an interesting idea. It's nice uh, to know that Neil is, you know, spending his time wisely. And uh, I don't think it's going to catch on. But it did lead. It did lead me to uh, the, the the ranking system was pretty much set for a long time. Very much um, a simple uh, system where you essentially got a, a point for winning a round. If you want a ranking of it, you got six points. <laughs> the world championship was ten. But in a normal ranking event, you've got six points, runner at five, semis four, quarters three, and so on and so on, all the way down to merit points, which we, we won't uh, go into that right now. But in 92, they changed it. And uh, I've got here, if I can find the page, the, the edition of Snooker Scene. It's August 92. Uh, just bear with me while I find the page. They changed the format. Here we are. So from going from getting six points for winning a tournament, a standard ranking event, you got 3,600. And it was a f- effectively... More or less 400 points around. So the runner-up got 3,200 semis, 2,800 quarters, 2,400 etc. etc. The UK championship was was a higher tariff, four and a half thousand, and then it went down in 500 point increments. So the runner-up got 4,000 semis, three and a half quarters, three, and so on. And the World Championship was six thousand to the winner, and it went down in 600 point increments. 4, uh, Five thousand four hundred runner-up, four eight for the semis and so on and so on so it was a it it felt like a big change at the time but it had a certain logic in terms of how the ranking points were spread it was still essentially you were getting the same number of points for winning a round in each round so whether it be 400 points or 500 or 600 it was like before when it was one point but it was there was a logic to it. What's happened of course in recent times is it's a money list and under the money list it's dependent on the prize money for that specific event, and that's why it's become so top heavy. That's why it's so difficult now to become a top sixteen player unless you win a tournament or are very, very consistent in in, in reaching a lot of finals, as Jack Lazowski has been. I mean, Jack's ten without winning a tournament, which I think is a great achievement, actually. Um, but this uh, this system that they established in 92-93, I mean, the, the the sort of the rather um. Dismissive uh, sort of argument against it was that John, uh, people said John Spencer, the chairman, had worked it out on the back of a cigarette packet, which I don't think was true. Uh, I mean, you probably would have would have needed something bigger than that. Uh, whether he worked it out or not, I don't know. But actually, you look at it, and I think this system is possibly a good middle ground um, because it doesn't it doesn't mean that the top prizes skew the ranking list. You're still getting rewarded. You're getting in the case of this. 3,600 points for winning a tournament but it's not so far away from second place or third place you know we always say about Gibraltar's the one that's always mentioned 50,000 to the winner and and 6,000 in the semis but actually the world championship when you think about it half a million for winning that ranking points 100,000 in the semis so it's a big drop off even just one round so if the ranking system is going to change, there's no sign that it will, but if it is going to change, I don't think Neil's idea would be the way I would go. But I maybe would go back to a point system like this um, that was established and seemed to certainly have a, a very accurate sort of reflection of the, of the rankings. Um, and then it, it's, it's about rewarding maybe a bit more consistency rather than just one one-off victory, maybe. There's arguments uh, for the, the current system, definitely, because winning a tournament is a great achievement, and why shouldn't you have a, a big rankings boost? Um, one thing to say about 92-93, of course, and this was this happened for, for decades until Barry Hearn took over, The ranking your ranking position was fixed for the whole season. So if you won a tournament early on in the season, you had no rankings boost. And, of course, that meant you were still playing a certain number of rounds and you were still playing maybe the harder players earlier on in the tournament if you were ranked number six in the world at the start of the season, you were ranked there until the end of the season when the new list came in. Um, I think it's much better now that we have flexibility, people can rise up the rankings, and so you get to the Masters. And in theory, it is the best 16 players on that cycle. Um But anyway, uh, thanks, Neil, for the email. And uh, yeah, you know, maybe file it alongside your doubles idea, which <laughs> which also didn't take off. Uh, you never know though You know, it, it could, uh, it, it could uh, excite, excite people and do let us know anyone listening who have comments on that but just to recap on what Neil's idea is basically it's reflective of not just how you do in a tournament but who knocks you out so example again Dave Gilbert was beaten in the first round at the Crucible by Ronnie O'Sullivan so on this ranking list Dave Gilbert is 17th because he lost to the eventual winner Ronnie of course number one We'll move on. I think. Uh, so, as I said at the start, uh, big news about the, the podcast is back, and you know we're always trying to innovate. There's always uh, new people coming along. Uh, Phil Seymour and Sean Murphy apparently starting a podcast. You know, so there's all these all these rivals. You know, and uh, it's it's important to refresh the act. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really refreshed, doesn't it? Uh, bearing on the last half an hour, but anyway. Uh, the news is this, and this will only be for a few weeks, this will not be for the whole year, but for the next few weeks there will in fact be two editions a week of this New podcast, Monday and Thursday, a bit like Blue Peter when I was growing up. And uh, the first one will be kind of a discussion, so there'll be emails and there'll be uh, reflections from fans, uh, if we get any. <laughs> um, and the second one, hopefully, each week will be an interview. And this week, uh, as, l- as long as all goes well and uh, we can get it done... I'll be speaking to Robert Milkins. Yes, I will. Robert Milkins, who, of course, uh, pretty sensationally won the Gibraltar Open last season. Um, So I'll be very interested to talk to him about that and his career. Uh, So that'll be on Thursday. Uh, I'd like to say it's for premium subscribers who pay me, you know, £5 a week. It's not, (laughs) because we don't have any of that, and I wouldn't have the nerve to charge either. Um, I should be paying you, frankly. But anyway, uh, so that will be for the first few weeks of the season. Not not every week, but for the first few weeks, there'll be two editions. Of the Snooker Scene Podcast What a time to be alive uh, And uh, on that point We of course value your emails So do uh, let us know about anything uh, That's happening in the snooker world And particularly for next week Our fan special If you've got any uh, views on What it is to be a snooker fan Then uh, let me know At uh, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com That's Podcast at mail.com uh, We're still part of the Sports Social Network So do check out their uh, their other podcasts but uh, that's it for now. So I'll be back on Thursday. Oh yes, it's uh, it's uh, an extraordinary time. I've been having threatened to pack it all in. I'm now doing two editions a week. Uh, I think the phrase "careful what you wish for" is <laughs> is springs to mind. Uh, but yes, uh, hopefully, we'll uh, be able to sort that out with uh, Rob Milkins. And uh, for the meantime, why not to uh, why not as we start season eight, we'll sign off with a, a good bye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. plus.